0: Let's talk, let's talk about the Gospel of Mark. We are just a little over halfway uh, through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to wrap this up uh, about mid-December. So there's only 16 chapters in the book of Mark. We have worked our way uh, just about through nine of them. After today, we'll finish nine of them. And I thought Ebony did a fantastic job last week capturing the heart of Mark's Gospel. The heart of Mark's Gospel takes place at the end of chapter 8 in the beginning of chapter 9, and it's when Jesus reveals his identity to his disciples. And uh, the question that Ebony asked at the heart of the gospel is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If you think about it, every single story that Marcus chose to tell has prompted that question. So from chapter 1 all the way through, every single story is, who is this? Who is this man who teaches with authority and not like the teachers of the law? Who is this man that uh, heals the sick? Who is this that casts out demons? Who is this that welcomes the unclean? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this that uh, people come to him to hear this message of his? Who is this that flaunts the rules of the Pharisees? You know, who is this that multiplies the bread and the fishes? You know, every single story has prompted people to ask, Who is this? Even the ruler of the land, Herod, is asking, who is this? Is this John the Baptist who's come back to life? Is this Elijah? Uh, Is this uh, a prophet? You know, who is this man? And at the end of chapter 8, Jesus asks his disciples, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Messiah. Now, in other gospels, uh, Peter's answer is, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I always say that is the most basic confession of the Christian faith. A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, or believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then lives accordingly. Not perfectly, but accordingly. And what I mean by that is, if Jesus is the Messiah, then he is to be the Lord of my life. If Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then he's to be the Lord of my life. And I'm to to try to pattern my life after his. I'm to try to follow his will And his ways. And I'll never do it perfectly because I'm human. But I'm gonna do the best that I can to follow Jesus because I believe that he truly is the Son of God. And that's what Ebony did a really great job of emphasizing um, last week. And it's kind of, it becomes a a shift in the, the whole ministry of Jesus. So everything up to this point has been very much focused on the public ministry of Jesus. He's dropped hints along the way of who he is. And, and there's been some clues along the way that he's the Messiah. He has the authority to forgive sins. He, he has authority over life and death. You know, I mean, there's, there's clues along the way. But at, at chapter 8, and it's confirmed by the transfiguration, which is, again, only done with three disciples. But uh, there's a shift because now his disciples know who he is. And Jesus begins to teach his disciples as to what the Messiah is getting ready to do. And they don't understand. Every time Jesus, there's multiple times after this that Jesus tells them the Messiah must go to Jerusalem and die. And every time he tells them this, they either push back against it, as Peter did immediately following, or they're confused by it because they don't understand. Jesus is operating like a Messiah doesn't operate. The other thing that they're confused by is when Jesus starts to teach them, and he and he kind of shifts in chapter eight and nine from teaching the public, and he will continue to do that, but he's very much focused on teaching his disciples. And he starts to teach them what a disciple must do. A disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And every time he says this, they're confused as well, because it doesn't fit what they thought they were going to be. As followers of the Messiah, they didn't think it was going to look like that. And the best evidence of that is actually in chapter nine. So we're gonna read a few of the stories in chapter nine, not all of them, but the, the stories here are fantastic. Okay, Chat, the stories in chapter nine, as I opened it up and started studying this week, I like the, these are some of the best stories in, in the Gospel of Mark because they got some of the best quotes in the Gospel of Mark. Like there's there's some stuff that there's a the stuff a guy says here. Uh, that's coming for healing. Uh, there's stuff that Jesus says. It's like I mean, these are it's just powerful, powerful teachings. Uh, and again, we, we won't get to all of them, but I want to start reading in verse 14. So let's just start start picking up the story here. It says when they came to the other disciples, and of course, it's talking about Peter, James, and John. You know, they had been to the Mount the Transfiguration, which was confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. So they come back, and, and it says they, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered. Now, the disciples never got to answer the question. We still don't really know what they were arguing about. But it was the teachers of the law and disciples arguing about something. But when Jesus says, what are you arguing about? There's a man in the crowd that answers. And he says, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying this to the father. I think he's saying this to the disciples. I think this is a little bit of frustration with the disciples. Like, all this I've been doing and showing you. And and the disciples, I think, missed the mark in trying to cast out this demon. And I'll explain why in just a little bit. But I think that's kind of a a frustration um, with the disciples. But he says, bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's one of my, the boy's answer Is one of my favorite quotes in the New Testament. Um, Because it is, I think it's an expression of honest faith. And I think the reality is that that faith in Jesus is not easy. Faith is hard. And anybody who says, well, it's easy. You know, faith is easy. It's easy to believe in Jesus. Well, you just hadn't lived long enough then. You hadn't had enough heartache, you hadn't had enough trauma, you hadn't had enough grief, you hadn't had enough crisis. I mean, at at some point in our lives, we're going to experience something that's going to make us feel like that Father. That's going to make us feel that we are in a desperate situation and we, 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 yes, we believe that Jesus can help us. But we're also going to hedge our bets just a little bit, and so we've prayed prayers like this, like, "Oh God, please, please do this, please do this." But at the same time, I understand if you can't, you know, or you want, or those kind. Of, like, it, it, there's this mixture. This man comes to Jesus. What I see, this man comes to Jesus with this whole swirl of emotions. Like he believes it, but he doesn't believe it. He he, he thinks Jesus can help him, but he's he not sure he's going to help him. You know, so there's this. This whole swirl of emotions, this mixture of faith and, and a lack of faith, and he brings all of that to Jesus. Even in his unbelief, he comes to him and says, "If you can, if you can, please help me. Please take pity of me and do something him." And that's the human condition to me. That's faith. That's real life. Uh, I believe, but help me overcome. My unbelief. And, I, and I believe the thing that Mark's trying to tell us in, in the telling of this story, the way he kind of builds up to this particular line, is that this man is desperate. He's desperate. Um, his son has had this since childhood. It's trying to throw him in the fire and kill him. He's so desperate for help that he'll do anything. He'll even bring his son to this rabbi traveling around Galilee, whom he's heard has the power to cast out demons. And when he brings his son to the rabbi, the rabbi's not there, but his disciples tell him, we can cast it out and then the disciples can't cast it out, and apparently some big argument breaks out between them and the teachers of the law about who has the power to break out demons. So you, you, can you build his, his frustration? He won't even let the disciples answer the question because he's so frustrated, like, I brought my son for healing, and you guys can't do it, and you're arguing over about whether or not you can or whether or not, and my son is hurting the whole time you're having this religious argument. And so I really think the desperation is the thing you got to get here. Uh, I if, I don't know if any of you follow my wife's social media account. I did not post this on my social media account. But she posted uh, a picture of me on her social media account on vacation. Okay, and this wasn't the exact picture because I, I didn't know she was taking it of me when she took it. But um, this is not Halloween practice. Okay, this, is, this was my vacation. So Thursday morning, the, the day before we leave for vacation, I get a severe eye infection. And it, it's if you've ever had one of those, I always thought tooth pain was the worst pain you could ever have. I now think that eye pain gives it a run for its money. And it was like one of those, you know, it hurt to close it, it hurt to open it, it hurt to blink. Uh, it hurt for the eye to exist. And I, w- I mean, I was in all kind of pain. And Gene was like, you got to do something. I texted my doctor, whom I'm friends with, and uh, he was like, I'm at a conference. I texted him like 7.30 in the morning and said, i got to see you today. He said, I'm at a conference. Why don't you go see Dr. So-and-so? And so um, I went to Dr. So-and-so. And he's like, I can get you in at 4 o'clock this afternoon. I said, I can't wait till 4 o'clock this afternoon. I, I just, I, I just, I'm in so much pain. I can't wait till 4 o'clock this afternoon. And so I just drove up and down Hatcher Lane uh, knocking on doors. <laughs> and that's literally like at 8 o'clock. I just walked in and said, can you see me? Uh, and um, multiple said, no, we can't. We, you know, We're booked. We're full. We can't do it. And I walked into one, and um, the lady was working. Literally, when I walked into the door, she was on the phone telling somebody, I'm sorry, but we're completely booked up today that we don't have any appointments. And then she turned around and looked at me, and she said, except for you, I'm going to get you in. Like, you, you're you in pain. I'm going to get you in. Hold on, I'll go talk. So she went and talked to the doctor. And I was desperate for this, to the pain to subside. I mean, and it was not... I've had some eye infections before. I ended up losing about 90% of my vision with this one. So it, it got scary for me as to what was going on. And um, the doctor said, well, okay, here's what I think it is. She gave me a diagnosis, and she said, I'm gonna, you're going to have to put some, use some drops. I said, that's fine, I'll do it. She said, it was five to eight times a day. I don't care, I'll do it. Well, they're going to be really expensive. Like, they're, they're really expensive. I don't care, I'll do it. I'll pay whatever it is, prescribe them. I'll do it. Well, you probably got to go to Lewisburg to get them because uh, the, the local pharmacies don't carry these kind of eye drops. I don't, it doesn't matter. I'll do, I mean, at that point, I was desperate. You know, I mean, you've been in those situations where you've been hurting with a toothache or an eyeache or something. You're just in a desperate, desperate situation, and you're literally saying, I'll do anything. That's the situation I think that this uh, man was in. And it's, it's even more desperate than my situation because it involved his kid. You know what I mean? When it involves your kid, when your kid's hurting, you do anything. I'll do anything. And he comes to Jesus uh, with this this faith just kind of barely hanging on. And I think it's a you know a beautiful statement of faith. And I think it's something that we can go back to. Like if you go back to that, what is that, verse 24? That is something, underline that one in your Bible because you may need it at some point in your life. You will need it at some point in your life. You will need to be able to go to that one and when you're just kind of barely clinging to faith. And it may be that you're wrestling with demons of your own or you're suffered loss or you're desperate for help. And, and that's your prayer. And I think what Mark's telling us by including this story in the gospel is you can still come to Jesus with prayers like that. You can still come to Jesus with faith that's just barely hanging on. Um, Jesus welcomes that. Jesus does not rebuke the man. Jesus does not tell him, well, you need to have the faith of Jairus, or you need to have the faith of the woman that touched me on the street. Jesus welcomes the man, and in this case, he does what the man asked him to do. This is verse 25. It says, Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, and he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. There, there's so much missing context in this story, right? There's so much that I wish I could go back and say, Mark, 2,000 years from now, there's a lot we're not going to get. <laughs> you know, can, you, can you fill in a couple of blanks for us? And, and I think this, this phrase at the end is a really curious phrase, um, and I think we've understood it for many years because we've missed the context. Some people kind of interpret it as like there's a special kind of prayer Jesus gave that, that did the healing there. You've got to do special kind of prayers. I don't think it's that at all. Uh, I think Mark gives us a few hints in the telling of the story. But here's kind of what I think is going on. You remember earlier in the gospel, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had given his disciples the authority to cast out demons. And in in Mark 6, 15, it says that they cast out many demons. Like when he sent out his disciples, he gave them the authority to cast out demons. And they cast out many demons. Apparently enough that people would come to even to them for healing. And what I think is going on here in the words of my grandma, is I think the disciples probably got a little too big for their britches. <laughs> okay? Like, I, I think there was some ego that kind of slipped in. They've been going out here and healing people. They've been going out here and casting out demons. And now this man comes and brings this son. We can do it. Bring him to us. Bring him to the disciples. We can do this. And I think they kind of lost focus. They, they started concentrating on their abilities and their power, and weren't focusing on Jesus and his abilities and his power. I think that's what's going on here, and I, I think that because of the what happens after, too. But I think that's, I think what Jesus is telling them is kind of, you know, this is kind of, an, 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 again, through the story, he's a little frustrated with them. You unbelieving generation, how long am I going to put up with you? And I think he's frustrated with them because their ego had gotten in the way, and they kind of lost sight of what was going on here. And then at the end, he's like, this kind of can only come out by prayer as I see as kind of a reset comment. Like, you know, this has to be rooted in me, not in you. This is what I'm doing, not in what you're doing. And this is a temptation for all Christians when, when you know, sometimes we can, our ego can get out of control. And we start thinking it's about us and what we do. And that's what brings healing, or that's what brings change, or that's what brings, you know, whatever. You know, we start thinking it's about ours. And I think Jesus is trying to kind of turn this back to himself because and the reason I think this is what's going on is because look what happens in the next story okay this is immediately after this they left that place and they passed through Galilee and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples so his, his emphasis is shifts. he's teaching his disciples and he said to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of man they will kill him and after three days he will rise but they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you arguing about on the road?" But they kept quiet on the way because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. You, you see that? You see that, Like they were—they were having an argument with the teachers of the law about who can heal the boy. I don't know what that argument was about, but they were having some kind of argument about who has the power. This is what I think the argument is about: who has the power to heal this this boy. The teachers of the law are the disciples, and Jesus says, neither one of you do, I do. But then they leave that place. Immediately after that, they're humbled because Jesus comes and heals the boy, and he says, this can only come out by prayer. So they're humbled by this, but then immediately after this, they're walking or going to Capernaum, and on the way they have an argument about who's the greatest. The ego is back in, and you kind of see the way Mark writes this, there's a little bit of a shame, like they got caught in the argument. They got, like they're embarrassed a little bit that they were having this argument. And um, Jesus then teaches them, he uses this opportunity to teach them what it looks like to be a disciple. It's not about being perfect, it's not about being the greatest, it's not about being first, it's about humility. So Jesus uses this opportunity in verse uh, 35, he says, sitting down, which means, when he says sitting down, it means that he, the rabbi was getting ready to teach. So this was an indication that, that he was getting ready to teach. Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and servant of all. And he took a little child whom he placed among them and taking the child in his arms. He said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. And so what he says is, you want to be first, be last. You want to be great, be a servant. And I think the child is an example in, in his teaching. That's the illustration, is look at the, look at the innocence of this child. Look at the, you know, children are genuinely um, unpretentious. You know, look, look, at the, look at this child. That's the way you need to have faith. This is not about being great. This is not about being first. This is about being a servant. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of mine. Faith requires humility. And they still aren't there yet. Because look at the very next story. Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. I mean, you, see, you see this battle going on through all of chapter 9. There's this battle going on between what Jesus is teaching and calling them to and their ego. The whole way they're just battling this ego the whole time, not one of us. You're not one of us. You can't be, you know, it's all all the attention's being focused on them and what they're doing. And what Jesus is continuing to try to teach them throughout this chapter is that if you are going to be a disciple of mine, you're going to have to figure out how to humble yourself and how to take on the role and nature of a servant because arrogance is incompatible with discipleship it just is that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in that because we we all got egos and those those slip in and take but arrogance being self-centered is incompatible with discipleship if your whole focus is on who's the greatest and who's a part of us and who's the one doing the power who has all the healing and all this kind of then you're missing the point to be a disciple and, and to have faith, it must be rooted in humility. And Jesus himself sets the tone for that because Jesus himself is going to humble himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross. And he's asking his disciples to follow him in the same way. And it's a really, really, really hard thing to do. I don't know how many of you saw um, this documentary right here. Ooh, that's a bad picture. I should have looked at that before I... Obviously didn't remember. I had a busy week. Uh, that's the first time I've seen that on the screen. Uh, the Last Dance. It was on. Uh, I think it's on Netflix now. It was. It was ESPN put it out. It was about Michael Jordan, and um, I loved the documentary because it like it was filled with all this '80s, '90s nostalgia for me because that like that was that was back when I actually watched the NBA. Like I, I knew who Jordan was, I knew Bird and Johnson and all those guys, but Jordan. And he was the greatest basketball player of all time. I mean, you can argue with me if you want to, but you'd be wrong. He's the greatest basketball player of all time. And I like, I mean, just I, watching Jordan, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I was, that was when I was in junior high high school. I was like, oh, I remember Jordan. It's just incredible. It was amazing. Um, there's a part of Jordan's story, though, that they left out of the documentary. Because the, the story ended in 1998 after his comeback. Uh, in 2009, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And his speech at the Hall of Fame might have been even more telling about his career than anything he did on the basketball court. Now, I was not familiar with it. I'm completely honest. I read it in a book this week as I was preparing this message. And I was like, I never, I never heard that speech. You know, 2009, I wasn't paying attention. And then I went back and watched it. It was a 23-minute speech that he gives at his Hall of Fame induction. And... Um, it's, it's an interesting speech because he talks about all the people that got him where he was. And it wasn't people that encouraged him and it wasn't people that built him up. It was all his rivals and his enemies. And so he even flew in his old high school teammate to the Hall of Fame that beat him out of a varsity position when he was in high school to prove to his old high school coach, you were wrong. And, and he referenced like a, a 28-year-old Sports Illustrated article that, that said something negatively about him and how that drove him to become the greatest to prove that author 28 years ago, an editorial pit to prove him wrong. So he, talk, he spent 23 minutes talking about all his rivals and how he was greater than all his rivals. How Buzz Peterson won Player of the Year in college, but look where Buzz Peterson is now. Buzz Peterson's not in the hall. Like he spent 28-3 minutes talking about how he was the greatest. And the speech after him was David Robinson. If you guys remember David Robinson, he was a, a center for the Spurs. Robinson spoke for seven minutes, and it was a drastically different speech. Robinson talked about his kids. He talked about uh, his teammates, he talked about his coaches, and he ended with a parable that Jesus told about gratitude. Now, I can't show you 30 minutes worth of of NBA Hall of Fame induction speeches because we're out of time now. But I want to show you about three and a half minutes of it because I think it's a very interesting contrast that takes what Jesus said about the first must be last and brings it into the modern day. So this was a little, I just found this on YouTube, it's about a three and a half minute video where they take some excerpts of the speech and just kind of show you for comparison contrast purposes. So watch this.
1: Obviously, you, you see my kids, you know, you guys have a heavy burden. I, I wouldn't want to be you guys if I had to, you know, because of all the expectations that you have to deal with. I mean, look around you. you know, they charge charging $1,000 tickets for this game, for this whole event. <laughs> it used to be 200 bucks, but I paid it. You know, I, I had no choice. I had a lot of family, a lot of friends I had to bring in. So thank you, Hall of Fame, for, the, for raising the ticket price, I guess.
2: David Jr., my namesake, I'm very proud of you. I hope that this gives you something that you want to live up to, that you that makes you want to be proud of the Robinson name and to carry it on. And, and, and you're so intelligent, and you're so wonderful. Uh, and, and I just want to say I love you, Corey, um, multi-talented, uh, a man after God's own heart. And, and I love you. And uh and and I wanna I wanna tell my son Justin, my youngest, who's uh he's my heart, he's uh always on my lap, always hanging on my neck, uh, brilliant. Uh, Exciting and, and, and uh, a natural-born leader, and, and I'm very proud of each one of you guys. And, and I hope this really makes you want to carry on the Robinson name. Right there, Jerry's not here. Obviously, I don't, you know, I don't know who inv- invited
1: him. I didn't. But uh, he said organization wins championships. I said I didn't see organization playing with the flu in Utah. I didn't see him playing with, you know, with the bad ankle. I think the players win the championship and the organization has something to do with it, don't get me wrong. But don't try to put the organization above the players because at the end of the day, the players
2: still gotta go out there and perform. You guys gotta pay us, but I still gotta go out and play. I wanna thank the Spurs uh, organization. They brought everybody out here, (laughs) and I appreciate that. Uh, And I I love you, Peter. Red McCombs, Angelo Drosos, those guys were the masterminds of bringing me in, and, and uh, they had more vision, more foresight than I did. So I want to thank you guys for that. Uh,
1: I can remember a game coming off the basketball court and we were down, I don't know, five to 10 points, and I go off about 25 points, and we come back and win the game. And we're walking off the floor, and Tex looked at me and said, you know, there's no I in team. I say, Tex it's not.
2: It's not an I in team, but it's an I and win. <laughs> Um, I want to thank all my teammates, Uh, Timmy, you're you're my man. Um. Hey. Have, Have any of you guys ever got on your knees and prayed really hard for something? That was my answer to prayer right there. (laughs) One thing that uh, I was thinking the other day about a story uh, from the Bible is from Luke, uh, the 17th chapter. And it was a story about 10 lepers that were healed by Jesus. And one of them came back. And one of them fell on his knees before him and said, thank you. And honored him and and blessed him. And and I just want to say thank you. God has followed me in my career and he has blessed me and he has strengthened me and he's encouraged me. And if anybody who knows me or anybody who has watched me, you have seen his hand in my life and my prayer is that he will walk with you as he has walked with me all through my life.
0: So it's one of those, like you watch that, and if you watch all the speeches, you go, who do you want to be? What kind of legacy you want to leave? Jordan was the greatest. He absolutely was. He was a better basketball player than David Robinson, 100%. He, on the basketball court, he was the greatest. In the game of life, I'm going to say Robinson's greater and just because I see the humility when he, when he speaks and see kind of the legacy. He's and I'm not saying Robinson's perfect. I'm sure he's not perfect. He has to wrestle with ego just like the rest of us because he's a person. But you see the marks of a disciple. And I do happen to know he is a disciple. He attends Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas. And so you see the marks of a disciple in the way he responds. And a lot of people go, well, Jordan was just joking. It was humor and all that. And maybe it is. You know, I'll give, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But it's just a great example of what it means that to be a disciple. And a disciple is characterized by humility and because that is what Jesus was characterized by. And so if you're trying to follow your life and model your life after the Messiah, then that's what your life's going to look like as well. So let me pray for us. And we've, just, we've got our offering, and that's the last thing we got. We'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Uh, Father I'm thankful for your word I'm thankful to have the opportunity To, to dig in and to teach it And thankful for the, the fact that it was preserved for so many generations That we can still open it today And learn about uh, you and your son Jesus And your love for us And it's in his name I pray these things Amen